my son's gonna be the zombie a zombie but specifically the zombie from like zombie high school i don't know is that a show i haven't seen that one yes yeah, probably it seems like it, it's a missed opportunity if it's not a show like right. we should probably- i mean they have a, like a vampire high school which high school i'm sure they have a yeah vampire. I don't know what the show is actually. I think it might actually be one of the specialized high schools in New York City. (laughs) You have to test in. It's... Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. This is Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact and Minnesota Campus Compact. And I'm here today with my esteemed colleagues, Marisol. Hi, everyone. Good to be back. And Andrew. And hello as well. And it (laughs) is also good for me to be back. Awesome. Well, just reintroduce yourselves in case we have new listeners. So I'm Andrew Seligson, president of Campus Compact. And I'm Marisol Morales, vice president for network leadership. What have you guys been up to, Marisol? I know you've been conference hopping. Yes, uh, Imagining America Conference and KUMU, the Coalition of Urban and Metropolitan Universities, both were in my hometown of Chicago. So uh, I got to stay here and uh, enjoy both conferences, learn a lot and uh, connect around the uh the important things in our field, uh, particularly around issues of equity and uh, for the focus of IA was around um, incarceration and uh, and, you know, just the amazing work that they're doing. And we actually got to present at Imagining America on our education for democracy and get a lot of really great feedback. And then I had a a couple presentations uh, for Kumu and even did a community tour of my neighborhood of Paseo Boricuan, Humble Park. Oh, wow. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I was out there for those conferences as well. And in addition to our presentation, the two highlights for me, uh, one was getting to visit uh, Marisol's home. Uh, She graciously had some of us who were at the conference over, and uh, that was fantastic. Got to meet Marisol's mom, which is like a particular bonus. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing at the Imagining America conference, I mean, I enjoyed a lot of things at both conference, but I went to a session of formerly incarcerated people who are now pursuing various levels of higher education, talking about their experiences as learners uh, in prison, their uh, how they've become connected to higher education systems. It was incredibly interesting and powerful. And, uh, you know, there's a a lot of great work going on in providing educational opportunities for currently and formerly incarcerated people. And it's also so far from meeting the actual demand, the need. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was just it was really I've done some work uh, in the past in prison education. And this was just like a really powerful reminder of the extraordinary human potential that we are I mean, basically just destroying through mass incarceration, but then also not even uh, kind of picking up the possibilities as people are released. So anyway, really, really good reminder and just interesting to learn from these folks. I think that's a future podcast uh, episode. I agree. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. And I, um, along those lines, would recommend the new serial podcast, which is kind of a window, window into the criminal justice system through Cleveland, Ohio. And it's fascinating. I'm really, I'm really enjoying it. I mean, enjoying is probably a bad word, but for it, because it's not enjoyable, it's very frustrating, but it's also interesting. Um, One of the things I enjoy about doing this podcast is just sort of seeing what's going on in the background of each of your offices. And um, Andrew, I feel like I'm looking at a picture of a cat taking a shower. So (laughs) that's not technically true. It's a pig. It's it is a pig. It's interesting that we've. I don't know if we've ever discussed this on the podcast before. Today I can't look at anything else. All right, let me let me uh, be clear about what's going on here. So uh, our vice president for strategy and operations, Maggie Grove has a daughter named Charlotte, and Charlotte is something of a budding artist. And I'm going to let others draw their own conclusions about the meaning of what I'm about to tell you. I'm just (laughs) giving you the facts. Charlotte 
uh, has drawn a series of images that I, I think it's fair to say depict me in the various roles I play in my life as a purple pig. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, you know, the, the young artist vision, and I just have to go with it. So there's one of me cycling, a thing I like to do. Uh, there's um, one of me uh, holding a microphone like I'm giving a talk, and the microphone actually says Campus Compact in case anyone doubted <laughs> that these were depictions of me as a pig. Uh, and many of them are labeled Mr. Pig, so that that's the name of me as a pig. I'm I'm sorry I'm I'm starting to wonder how Maggie talks about you at home. <laughs> there is yes, so apparently some poor, poor sign imagery that uh, is deployed. <laughs> you raise an excellent point. Uh, so yes, that's Wait, um. Is the one I'm looking at you as a pig taking a shower? I think the one I'm trying to see what you can see. So the top no, right corner. No, actually, that one is. Uh, that's Mr. Pig has a birthday party. I think the thing that look like raindrops <laughs> are polka dots on a party hat. Or oh, yeah. See look like the, the okay. shower water okay. or whatever it would be. Yeah, polka dots right. on a party we, hat. We can move on. I just, I really I, couldn't move on. I don't know that on. we can. <laughs> that's so. the end of the podcast, folks. See yeah. you next time. Um, exactly. And that'll do it for today. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Okay. <laughs> So, Mr. Pig, if we could <laughs> turn back to... You're wrong, Emily. You're just wrong. <laughs> yeah, please uh, tweet at Mr. Pig if you have any <laughs> thoughts on the Compact uh, Nation podcast. So. Um, this has made my whole day. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I love it. It's, okay. Yeah, well, it, it, honestly, it makes every day for me because I do love these drawings, just in all honesty. They are quite, they are quite good. I'm sorry yeah. I thought it was a cat. No, <laughs> it's, it's fair. It's um, it's drawn, it's a kind of conceptually, you know, it's not very, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's, let's jump into our segments. And today we're talking about faculty development and we're going to start with our segment we call. What does that mean? So what does that mean? Faculty? We will start with Andrew. What, where does the word come from? I know you love to share. So, yeah, um, it, you know, essentially goes back to um, Latin, actually. And the, the Latin term that it comes from kind of has the same origin as facile, meaning easy. Um, and so it, it ended up moving and, you know, it's like a lot of these terms into medieval Latin and middle French and middle English, blah, blah, blah. But the main point is it came to mean power. Right. So when we talk about like our oh, faculties wow. of reason or our other, you know, personal individual faculties, they're about the ability to do something. And that comes from the idea that, like, you know, it's it's easy for you to do them. You have that power. And so the idea of a, a faculty at a university uh, came to mean some capacity that university has. So mm. the the university, you know, the faculty is only used collectively, right? You can't talk about a faculty unless you mean a group of people. And so you talk about the faculty of literature or the faculty of art or music, and that is the capacity of that university to uh, contain and gather and disseminate knowledge about that thing. And so that's that's where where the term comes from. Uh, and yeah, so that's that's what I'll say about that. But it's interesting because it is used as a term to describe an individual person's role pretty frequently. I mean, only as an adjective, right? A faculty member or True. the yeah. faculty role. Um, I mean, I think sometimes loosely, sometimes people yeah. say a fa but I think, yes, technically not a sort of correct use of the word, although who cares at some level, as long as we know what people are talking about. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, for me, we're going to talk about a book in a minute. And one of the things that that book points out is that, um, you know, 50 years ago, 75% of faculty were tenure or tenure track, and that's uh, reversed. Now 75% are not tenure or tenure track. So, you know, what, what that role actually means at an institution is changing all the time, I think. So we have the traditional understanding of someone who's balancing teaching research and service, uh, more and more roles for people focusing specifically on teaching. Um, and then a large percentage, not full-time, right, uh, who are balancing a teaching role with often another full-time job. 
So it's changing quite a bit what that word means, what that role is on a campus. Yeah, and what their connection to students may be. Right. So you would often find mentorship from faculty in a department that you were connected to. And so as we have more and more adjuncts or instructors coming in, where does, you know, um, the connection to, to student support happen? And then also even in the field of community engagement. Right. A lot of the push was working with uh, tenured or tenure track faculty as we're working with more adjuncts who are doing community engagement, who are on contractual, um, who are working at the university on a contractual basis, if they're coming back the following year, whether or not they'll have the the time um, to, um, you know, do service learning projects or community engaged projects, um, you know, also impacts our field quite a bit. I think, I mean, one of the things I find interesting too about the meaning of the changing shape of sort of employment in on the teaching and research side of universities is that the from my perspective kind of the faculty as a whole has historically had a couple of roles one is to teach students one is to conduct research but an, importantly a third one is to govern the curricular side of the institution and part of the idea was there was a that was a kind of democratic way of proceeding that the faculty were the ones who had to actually make the curriculum happen. And so they governed, but they also lived with the consequences of their decisions, et cetera. Increasingly, that's not true. They make decisions about what courses will be offered, what programs, what majors, whatever. And someone else does the actual labor of offering the curriculum. And so that's an odd change that I don't think there's just been much reckoning with uh, within the institution the other part about it that I find troubling is that, you know, faculty status has always, well, faculty nests has always come with status. And while, again, that used to be a broadly distributed status among all the people doing the teaching and research at the university, and increasingly it's a status held by a very small number while other people do the teaching, and increasingly other people do the research too, because so much of what happens in most labs uh, at, at large universities in particular is that postdocs and graduate students are carrying out the research, and the faculty member associated with the lab is basically like an administrator of these mm-hmm. big grants that drive it. And so the, the things that were characteristic of the faculty aren't really true anymore, but the status and power they still hold it. It's just this narrow and narrower slice of of the the actual teaching and research uh, workforce that that has all of the status and power. Yeah, I mean there are troubling things about it. I think there are um, some potential positives too of different understandings of what a faculty member is who can teach, um, diff- and sort of dividing up the roles as well. Because I think for me one of the things that's clear is there's it's not a lot of people necessarily who are both very, very good at research and teaching necessarily. So having that all embodied in one role doesn't necessarily make for good outcomes all around. And I think some more dividing up of that, those responsibilities can be useful. I mean, I don't know. I think that there's much of that is really around training, right? So oftentimes mm-hmm. faculty come into um, the university based on their discipline and there hasn't been an expectation to really uh, learn uh how to teach, right, or be trained in that. And so that becomes not a requirement of the position or in preparation for someone to take a faculty position, but as a kind of side professional development if they're interested in, in doing that and not always an expectation. There are some uh, places that, you know, will build that into um, doctoral programs like uh, preparing future faculty type uh, programs, but you know, often it's just based on the discipline and not with the expectation of teaching, but not necessarily the training to to be an effective teacher. And I think as we're experiencing, um, you know, changing demographics at our institutions, it's important to bring that piece because um, our student body is changing. We need to be um, aware of that and how we bring in uh, and nurture, you know, the 
the cultural assets that, that our students are, are bringing in and, and leveraging those. I guess the, the other thing I would say about that is just that I think the idea of having faculty members who have a specific focus on teaching could be a very good idea. But then you would also pay them a decent wage, give them benefits, yeah. have them part of the decision making about curriculum, et cetera. And so the idea that we separate it out, but then we pay the people who actually teach our students very little and yeah. don't afford yeah. them any decision. That part of it, I think, is out of whack. But I think some institutions have begun experimenting with real teaching faculty positions that, yeah, that have uh, just a different focus, but still you know, are, are respected and well compensated. And I think that's a, a good uh, direction to go potentially. I think part of it is just the university generally and universities in particular have just not really reckoned with the fact that this change has happened. Yeah. Hmm. So people sort of pretend that the people teaching all the classes are faculty members with the same, you know, yeah. status and power. They just aren't. And sometimes it, it leads to great things. People who aren't on the tenure track, feel freed up to do the things that they find most compelling. And I had some great faculty members, adjunct faculty members I worked with at Rutgers Camden, for example, who were doing extremely innovative stuff because they said, yeah, I don't have to publish and I don't even have a real chance of getting a tenure track job here. I might as well do what I care about. And it was community engaged stuff. But it, of course, it's very hard for people who are trying to cobble together five, six classes to make a living. Yeah. I mean, right. It becomes like the gig economy for, you know, the, the educated, right. And the folks who are teaching at multiple institutions just to, to get by. Right. Um, okay. So continuing that, this kind of line of thinking you, Marisol mentioned, uh, you know, faculty not always having the preparation for teaching. So we wanted to talk about a new book that came out recently called Reconceptualizing Faculty Development and Service Learning and Community Engagement. Um, it's edited by Becca Berkey, Kara Meixner, uh, Patrick Green, and Emily Eddins. And um, I know and it was published by Stylus just, I think, earlier this year. Um, I just finished it. I know you guys haven't read it yet, but a lot of the work we do is around faculty development and helping faculty think about doing their teaching and research in a community-engaged and civically-engaged way. But I think inherent in that is also sort of just helping them figure out um, quality teaching. Uh, often when I do faculty development, that's you know, some of what it's about is just using good design principles to connect your learning outcomes and your activities and your assessment in ways that fit with community engagement and beyond. But um, the book talks about a lot of things I found really interesting. One I wanted to bring up for you guys is ways in which faculty, there's a great chapter by Timothy Eatman, of course, wonderful, Yay. the wonderful Timothy Eatman. And one of the things he talks about is, um, you know, the idea of faculty development, not just giving faculty new skills and competencies, but also helping to build their agency as people who identify as publicly engaged scholars and, um, you know, understand the core of that identity and what it means and are able to speak about it and are able to um, mentor others in that and, and really just sort of be more a part of this thing. Um, and I thought that was very interesting. And I, I wondered what you guys think about that, if that's something you've seen in the work you've done with faculty. Um, cause I know it has, I, I've definitely seen it. I mean, for me, I think it's important that it's connected to something that, um, you know, the faculty, um, care about, right? And so that sense of agency um, and connection to being publicly engaged scholars also is tied to something that, um, you know, they personally have a stake in or they believe in or, or they're connected to or they're passionate about. Um, I also think that, you know, that's how you um, not only transfer, transform the experience for students, but for them as well, right? So them being able to, to see that impact in their students and, and in the communities that, that they're working with. Um, 
I think as the other piece is we are also experiencing, particularly with new faculty members coming um, into the academy, folks who have experienced community engagement as students, whether it was undergraduate or, or graduate level. And so there's an expectation and an understanding of it from a deeply personal right away. They may have been transformed themselves by it. And so their route to uh, being publicly engaged scholars has actually started, you know, in their own um college experience. So I think it's the ways in which institutions support that, honor that in tenure and promotion uh, processes and um, the ways in which, you know, we start to have um, discussions in the academy about inclusive scholarship and and how we uh, work with our faculty to to take ownership of that role and and have that agency in doing this kind of work and connecting it to their own scholarship and teaching. Yeah, in my experiences of doing kind of formal faculty development work or informal, I guess, with Mm -hmm. both Princeton and Rutgers Camden, yeah, I would say that the most kind of important part of the process was creating pathways for faculty members to reconnect their work with things they really care about in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Because so often the the process of graduate education, the hunt for tenure, these things kind of uh, drive a wedge between the real reasons people, you know, undertook the careers they did and the stuff they're doing day to day. And for, for many people, community engaged teaching, research becomes a way to bring those strands back together. And yeah, there's skills and there's knowledge of resources and all that. But in some ways, once you just plant in, you know, people, the idea that that's actually a good thing to do and it's okay, Mm -hmm. they're allowed to do that and allowed to do things that seem to matter to them. Uh, It just kind of, uh, yeah, a a lot of it takes care of itself after that. So one of the other things I wanted to bring up for you guys, towards the end of the book, they present this, um, transformative model for faculty development, but basically suggest bringing together teaching and learning, institutional culture, knowledge generation and application and community partnerships as four sets of activities that need to be integrated for faculty to be successful as, you know, community engaged, publicly engaged scholars. And they present this idea of threshold concepts. So you guys are probably familiar with that from other disciplines, you know, that there are these threshold concepts that you need to know sort of at the, like a portal into understanding that world. So they're presenting um, critical reflection, positionality, reflexivity, and reciprocity as sort of the threshold concepts that fit under each of those areas of activities. And I thought that was really interesting. You know, critical reflection is obviously just such a core component and a lot of what I think most faculty development needs to spend the most time on. Um, Positionality, more thinking about is the role they do play in the institutional culture and governance and how they can claim that role. Um, And then reciprocity for community partnerships, just really thinking about how to create that type of relationship. So those as being things anybody we're going to have be a part of community engaged, um, the community engaged uh, faculty role would would need to have those concepts. And I don't know, do those square with some of the things that you guys think about as threshold concepts? Are there other things that come to mind for you or that you would um, think are most important to make sure are held by anyone sort of doing this work? I guess one thing for me, I am actually not a huge fan of the concept of reciprocity in this context. And there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, for me, the central reason is it suggests a transactional relationship where we could, in fact, measure the contributions that each side is making and the benefits. Now, they may have a a different concept of it, right? So this is stipulating to the fact that I actually have not read this book, but I've obviously been in many, many conversations where people have used this term over the years. And I just think it is not actually descriptive of good partnerships, that when we are in a partnership, part of the idea is I'm not constantly keeping score. So I'm responsible for looking out for the interests of my partners but I'm also not constantly measuring whether they're doing enough. Whereas in a reciprocal relationship, that's exactly what I'm doing. 
And so for me, we, we need better language that captures, uh, mutuality, uh, that captures common cause, right? Cause part of the idea is I should have a stake in the outcome for you and you should have a stake in the outcome for me. Otherwise probably we're not working together to make change together. And so for me that that's, and again, they may have a more sophisticated version of this. So I don't want to you know, criticize something I haven't read. But in general, when that word is used, for me, that's too far on the transactional side relative to the kinds of, uh, yeah, mutually supportive partnerships that I hope we are typically developing. I mean, I agree with that because I think the goal should be more like co-creation versus reciprocity. But I think it's a continuum. And I think the idea of a threshold is that you start somewhere and knowing that we have courses and partnerships going on where there isn't even reciprocity, you know, maybe it does have a place as a a threshold, a, a jumping off point, because I think it's, I think it's the bottom line. I think you have to at least have that. And the goal should be higher. I guess I would say, I just to just one quick thought on that. I don't think it's a continuum. I think it's a different concept. So co-creation, it's not like you go from reciprocity to co-creation. When you're on a reciprocity dimension, you're transactional. When you're on a co-creation dimension, you're just doing something different. That's that's what I would say. But sorry, Marisol, I think you were about to say Yeah, something. no, I mean, I think I've evolved in, in this. I think when I first started, there was a lot of sort of concept, uh, conversations about reciprocity. But, you know, for me, it's important, the idea of community as co-educator and uh, thinking about power dynamics and the way. And so in I think when you're in a relationship, you can have those conversations. You can, you know, um, talk about those things. I think it's about community as intellectual space, right? Uh, Not as a laboratory where we're testing things out, but actually as a space where knowledge is created. And so the thinking, so I I would say, you know, sort of in the threshold conversation that, um, you know, community as intellectual space is actually one of those entry points that we have to um, start talking about in real ways and um, the different sort of funds of knowledge, right, um, that exist that that oftentimes we don't think about because in the way the academy is structured, uh, we are the fund of knowledge, right? And so um, how how do we expand that beyond um, that is, I think, important for for faculty development. Uh, You know, when I was doing uh, faculty development workshops, you know, I'd often say, if you're a control freak, you don't want to do this because (laughs) stuff happens and you have to be open and you have to be flexible. And so um, when you're so um, focused on the outcome of it, then it moves into that transactional uh, relationship as opposed to something that's mutual. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I think we're out of time, but I would recommend the book. I found it very useful just in terms of thinking about how we can best support faculty, um, some some trends in that area. And again, this model that they're presenting. And I think it's a lot of good, good ideas and some really interesting case studies for how some institutions are approaching it. Um, so I think we're going to now shift to a little bit of a bright spot and talk about what this is looking like in our world. Andrew, do you want to introduce that? Absolutely. So the bright spot is some work Campus Compact is doing, building a credentialing program for higher education community engagement professionals. And I won't say too much more about it because to dig into that, I had a conversation with Clayton Hurd. Clayton has been uh, with Campus Compact just since this summer as our director of professional learning. He came to us from the Haas Center at Stanford, where he'd been for about the last seven years. He has uh, a long career as both a community engagement professional as well as um, faculty member in public and private, two-year, four-year institutions. Um, Clayton's an anthropologist by training. He uh, has a PhD in anthropology from UC Santa Cruz and has published widely in anthropology as well as uh, in uh, work that relates directly to community engagement. He has a book called Confronting Suburban School Resegregation in California, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press a few years ago. So a wide-ranging scholar with deep experience in 
uh, in community and civic engagement, and he's really leading our efforts to uh, to build this credential uh, and credentialing program more broadly. And so let's go to that interview. Clayton Hurd, thank you for joining us on the Compact Nation podcast. Happy um, to be here. And it's uh, great to be with you. All right. So uh, I wanted to start by asking you to talk a little bit about why Campus Compact is pursuing a credentialing program. Oh, sure. Well, over the last, I guess we could say 25 or 30 years, we've really seen a Sort of an exponential growth in higher education of commitments to community engagement, you know, through service and experiential learning, volunteerism, and sort of other kinds of campus community partnerships that are really designed, right, to both deepen students' academic and problem-solving skills, as well as their civic development. But it's also tied to, I think, uh, an, an uh, interest in higher education institutions really advancing their own missions to help sustain democracy and promote the health and sustainabilities of communities, both locally and regionally, but even on global levels. And of course, faculty are deeply involved in this work as our student affairs offices. And so we're sort of seeing this third space of sort of university and community-based professionals who are acting as really community engagement specialists, right? They are serving in public service centers or centers for service learning and community partnerships and civic engagement offices. And and their main duties really are to develop, facilitate, and sustain a whole range of activities and relationships that connect the university to the communities outside of it, often across like significant variables of difference, right? And they're expected to do this work in a way that's grounded in the qualities of reciprocity, mutual respect, shared authorities, and really with a commitment to inclusion and equity. So as you can imagine, this is extremely important and complex work. And the fact is people who facilitate this work and have been facilitating this work um, actually receive very little in terms of structure, structured preparation because it doesn't really fall well into the kinds of sort of graduate school and advanced um, training that, that's provided. Um, so I think a lot of people learn it on the fly. But the truth is there really is a diverse, distinct, and even evolving body of knowledge right, and practice that's needed to do this kind of community engagement work really well, right, in an ethical, effective, and inclusive way. And it goes way beyond the established professional training that exists now. So we thought this is a great opportunity to be able to say, okay, what are these skills that, that folks need and have that are doing this work? How, we can, how can we identify them? How can we make sure we highlight them? And then get folks involved in really sort of assessing their own knowledge and being able to sort of improve their knowledge in, in these competency areas that we've developed. And so if, if we, you know, we use this term credentialing program, what are we actually talking about? What is, what is the thing that you are involved in developing? What's it look like? How will it appear for practitioners out there who are interested in both demonstrating and building their own knowledge and skills? Yeah. So I really, I think in designing this program has sort of been a, a multi-year effort, uh, really with this idea that there really has to be sort of a threshold of knowledge that one needs to be really competent as somebody doing this work. So over the last several years, uh, Campus Compact, working with a number of other professionals in the field, uh, has really sort of created a couple of uh, advisory boards to sort of think about what are these credentials that folks need to do this work? What do they look like? What are the dimensions of them? Um, we've drawn significantly from the work from, of, of Lena uh, Distilio and her colleagues who have really been thinking through sort of an emergency, uh, emerging competency model for community-engaged professionals. And they've developed sort of a, a set of key competencies and critical commitments in a number of different areas. So the credentialing system is sort of based on this idea that there are these areas of, of, of both skill, uh, knowledge, and sort of critical practice that we need to identify and that folks get a chance to really think about their own uh, their own works in those areas. So when we use this word competency, it's where we, we throw around a lot because it's really the focus of this program. What we mean by that is sort of a set of skills, knowledge, and critical commitments that people who do this work really need to mobilize to sort of advance higher education, community, and civic uh, engagement in a, in, a, in a matter characterized by inclusion, equity, and integrity. So that's been this idea is that we identify these competencies and we give folks the ability to 
both show that they have uh, a, a certain level of knowledge in that area, but also really think about what does it mean to improve their knowledge and really stay connected to the larger body of work around around how we how we know as a sort of a, a, a field of, of inquiry as well as practice, like how to do this work well. So I know some people when they hear terms like credentialing and the idea that you might earn a micro-credential on a, in a certain competency or some kind of a certification for your expertise, they, they worry that we're talking about standardization, about a kind of lowest common denominator approach. They have nightmares of bubble tests and kind of a return to applications for uh, various kinds of colleges and graduate programs. So what are we really talking about? Is that, is that what you envision or what, what, what's the answer to that? Well, I will say, first of all, that I was one of those people when I first heard about a credentialing program for the field of community engagement that I was, uh, I, I felt a little bit, I, I, there are legitimate critiques around, you know, really thinking of doing, you know, thinking about a credentialing program in this way. And, and you're right, the critiques are things like professionalism in general, anytime you, you professionalize a field, and we've seen this in the nonprofit sector, can lead to sort of a control of ideas where a small group this idea, right, that a small group holds authority and what define what counts as good engagement based on sort of lim- limited understanding of what's appropriate, or that this idea of having competencies, right, really fragmenting the work that we do um, doesn't really fully appreciate this as a very contextual practice that's often place-based and relationship-driven, never the product of a single individual, right? So, the, I mean, these are all legitimate critiques, but I, I want to say that I, the way that we're understanding credentialing and developing this program is not essentially about the question of licensing. Although I think the key aspect is that those who do this work should get credit for the competencies that they have. Um, but really what we see this credentialing program as being important for is really providing clear direction for professional development. It's about creating a path for people in the field, individuals who are working with others to gain and uh, gain and develop and improve their competence, and it's really again this belief that advancing competence in this field is this idea. That there's a threshold of knowledge that people need to know to do this work well, so they're not doing harm, right? They're not, they're they're doing it in an effective and ethical way, uh, in a spirit of, of co-creation and reciprocity and inclusion. Um, so the way I see it, credentialing, the way we're developing it is 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 that it's but one element of a push for high quality professional development in the field, and it has to be done in a way that's intentionally inclusive, collaboratively developed, and really centered on questions of equity uh, and ethical uh, reflection on practice. So to to me, it's not about a credentialer as campus compacted as a credential. It's not saying this is how you do this work, right? It's rather saying like this is how we do the work with attention to really always addressing concerns and questions about how can we do this work better and make that very much a collective conversation. And if we break it down to a really practical level, you know, when, when this thing is live and and up and running, what will I as a potential participant see and how will I kind of walk in the front door? Yes. So the idea is we have a larger program that's made up of a number of what we call uh, micro-credentials. And what micro-credentials are are sort of like a digital certificate that recognizes an individual's competency in a specific area of community engagement, right? And so people have the opportunity to earn a number of micro-credentials. And I'll talk, you know, quickly about what some of those are, just to give you an example. Uh, But the idea is you earn these individually, but they go towards the idea that you could earn a full set of them and really receive sort of a certification as a community engagement professional that's very knowledgeable in, in sort of a, a wide range of activity uh, in the field. Um, but the, some of those micro-credentials are, um, for example, you know, campus uh, thinking about how to do community partnerships in an ethical and effective way that's really mutually beneficial. Uh, what are the sort of, the, as we talk about competencies, the skills, knowledge, and sort of critical understandings you need to do that work well? Um, so let's say that is the micro-credential that you are applying for. Um, you would go in and you would be uh, asked to demonstrate that, that knowledge that you have and experience that you have, um, and, uh, and really be assessed by some of the key competencies in that area. Um, and for some people that have been involved in the field for 5, 10, 15 years, um, they can apply for those credentials just by demonstrating what they know. But we also know that the, we want the credentialing program to be open to people who are just emerging and starting to do work in the field. Uh, and what they will need to do is make sure that they have the requisite of professional development trainings 
uh, and opportunities to sort of learn more about the field, um, some level of practicum or experience in doing the work. Um, and from that can apply for this credential as a way sort of to really get themselves up to speed and make sure they have a full understanding of the, the kinds of skills and knowledge that would be necessary for them uh, to continue to, to, to be very strong in each of these areas. So it will be about going in, looking to see what our micro-credentials are that we're offering, uh, looking at what sort of the competencies behind them are, and then starting a process of either undertaking that micro-credential to earn it or trying to figure out what professional development you might need in order to uh, enter and start working on it. Clayton, you, you have a, a personal history both as uh, an anthropologist, uh, a researcher, a teacher, a scholar, as well as a community engagement professional having worked in a variety of different kinds of institutions, most recently at Stanford at the Haas Center before coming to Campus Compact. How are you mobilizing your own knowledge and experience in envisioning, developing, building this program? Yeah, I, I remember when I, you know, being an anthropologist and going sort of finishing my PhD and going out into the world, I, I knew what I wanted to do was campus community partnership work. I knew I wanted to be stay connected to communities and and really make sure that higher education was responsive to the communities that, that it was in. But the truth of the matter is I didn't really, as much as I had a, a really strong content knowledge, I, I didn't know how to do that work. There was no, no one that gave me preparation for that. Uh, and I remember I started at Colorado State uh, University working in their service learning program and, and in a program that they really wanted to institutionalize. And I thought, well, how do we do this work? How do we get people on board? And so for me, it was really thinking about how do we go out to our community and figure out from them sort of what their, their, their assets and needs are that we can help build on through our work. Uh, it was about sort of mobilizing folks on campus that are doing this work or can promote this work or already are in some ways uh, connected to community engagement work and bringing them together and talking about, okay, how do we do this work in such a way that we move a institutional agenda forward to, to really do engagement, both for student learning, but also for really sustaining the integrity uh, and equity within in the communities in which our universities are located and which we care about. And so as I, I did all that work, I thought, wow, there's, you know, there's, we need all these folks on board to develop what this work should look like. And then as we do that, we need to make sure that we have a way that folks that are involved in this work can connect to one another, learn from one another. I realize now with, you know, 30 or 40 years of people writing about and, and basically producing scholarship and literature and, and best practice guides in this field that we need to find, I think Campus Compact's in a really good position to be able to bring that knowledge together and allow it to be sort of accessed by people who can really go into and get deep into the work that's been done and sort of think and reflect on their own practice and make sure what they're doing uh, is in line with uh, what we've learned in the field and also the opportunity for them to contribute to the field because they have expertise in this field, in this, in this area, in this work that we would like to see them share with others. So I think there's a lot of opportunity again in this, in this credentialing program to develop a whole set of folks talking to each other and, and refining their practice, improving their practice, and creating more and new knowledge about how to do this, this work in, in, a, in a really equity-focused and inclusive way. So final question at a very nuts and bolts level. If uh, listeners to the podcast or folks they know are interested in you know, starting to participate in the credentialing program, uh, when will they have that opportunity? Yeah, that is the big question. I, I just came back from the Florida Campus Compact Gathering, and uh, there, and, and, and we know there's a lot of interest and a lot of uh, demand around uh, this program, and everyone wants to know, when is it starting? When can I do this? And what was interesting, I, I had imagined a lot of it would be the folks that are the, the sort of civic engagement professionals that are, that are uh, you know, people that are staffing centers and doing that sort of work, but there's a, a very deep interest among faculty as well to improve the practice in all these sort of areas of community engagement. And so what we're doing, just to give a little bit of, you know, a little bit of the timeline. So uh, we've been in the process of really bringing these micro-credential uh, uh, competencies together and then really kind of developing a way that people can engage with them in terms of using them to both demonstrate the knowledge that they have, but also to as a way to sort of improve their practice. So we put that together and we are going to pilot a couple of our micro-credentials actually just this next month in November to a limited audience of folks, just so we can get some understanding of how people engage with the way we've set up the, the curriculum around uh, the credential. 
uh, and just with a, with just two micro credentials, we'll we'll we'll, we'll do a, a bit of a, a small pilot, and then early next year, probably in March, we will roll out a larger version of the program that will be available to all who are interested, uh, highlighting probably four to six of our uh, micro credentials that we've uh, we've developed. And just quickly to give people like, what are these micro-credentials that we're talking about? You can go to credential.compact.org and see sort of a list of the current micro-credentials that we will have available. And they vary from, uh, again, community partnership work to what does it mean uh, to support faculty in doing uh, engaged teaching? Uh, how do we do global engagement? How do we think about civic learning? How do, how do our understandings of theories of, of, of student development, how can we deploy them? Uh, in, in, in engaging students in community and so forth. So there's a number of areas that will be uh, specific uh, that some people may have deep expertise in already and find, I feel really good about applying for this micro-credential. And others will say, oh, that's a really interesting area I need to improve my practice in. So let me look at what that looks like and what training I can get to, to prepare myself. So, so we hope that early next year we'll have sort of getting started. We expect by March uh, someone can jump into and start applying and working with these micro-credentials. Great. Well, thank you very much for the work you're doing and for sharing it with us on the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you very much, Andrew. Okay. We're back. Um, thanks for doing that interview, Andrew. Very interesting. And we're going to close it out today with... Um, Normally at the end, we'd either do Pop Culture Corner or share some resources. So I think this time we're going to share some resources focusing on some upcoming conferences in the Compact Nation. So Andrew, why don't you want to start with the big national conference announcement, and then I'd be happy to talk a little bit about our regional conference happenings as well. Yeah, I, uh, I hear in inside my head the drum roll and cymbal crash. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, the Compact Nation is going to Seattle for 2020. So we're very excited. Um, we are heading west. We've been for the last couple of conferences in Indy and before that in Boston. And so we're headed to Seattle. We have uh, great partners in Washington Campus Compact, as well as uh, some of the universities in and around Seattle. And uh, really excited to learn more about the work that's going on in that city, which is obviously a space where many of the, the great issues facing the United States today are playing out in all kinds of ways with, uh, you know, dramatic changes in housing prices and, you know, the tech boom centered there in many ways with Amazon, et cetera. And so I think it's a really interesting place where our universities are really grappling with some of the biggest uh, challenges uh, around supporting communities uh, in the context of that dramatic change. So the dates of that conference are March 29 to April 1st, 2020. Seems like a long way in a way now, but it'll be upon us before we know it. And so really excited to go out there. And um, I, uh, I don't think it'll be raining. For sure. But before that, 2019 is a great year for you to visit one of our regional conferences. So we um, put on our support uh, for conferences across the country in those odd years when we don't have a national conference. Um, the first one coming up is the Continuums of Service Conference, um, which is in the Western region this year. It's in San Diego, and that's March 6th through the 8th, 2019. So I think registration for that is already open. Um, right on the heels of that, the Eastern Region Campus Compact Conference will be in Providence, Rhode Island, March 25th to 27th of 2019. And then in April, um, we're partners with the Gulf South Summit, which is this year in Huntsville, Texas, April 3rd through 5th. And then last, but of course, not even close to least, would be the Midwest Campus Compact Conference, which it will be next May 30th and 31st um, at the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities. And that one, so I think there are various stages of seeking proposals, some of which are open. The Midwest one is about to open. So you can still make your plans to attend and possibly also present at any of those great conferences. Marisol, are you making the rounds to all I of them? I think so. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, a lot of travel this year. I've uh, been to all of them, just not um, in the same year. Yeah. 
I've typically gone to COS, but that's the career Grand Slam, Emily. But it's not. The, oh yeah, the calendar year Grand Slam. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And then um, I just want to add in terms of resources, our national webinar series, our next one yeah. coming up is November 13th. It's focused on community colleges. The title is Community Colleges as Civic Power Plants, Generating, Harnessing and Spreading Civic Power. And we will have um, our director of community college engagement. Virtus Robinson will be the lead on that uh, webinar. So uh, November 13th, 3 p.m. Eastern, um, you can still uh, go on our website and register if you'd like to participate. Compact.org. Compact.org. Well, thank you both for today. And um, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Do check out those upcoming events on compact.org. Everything is there about those. And as always, we want to hear from you. If you have ideas, things we should be talking about, resources we should be sharing, um, anything along those lines, podcast at compact.org. Rate us and review us on iTunes. Find us on social media. Hashtag Compact Nation Pod. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. All right, good. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. Nation podcast is produced by Molly Leeper, Communications Manager for Campus Compact. Campus Compact is based in Boston, Massachusetts, and has over a thousand member colleges and universities across the country and beyond. If you want to learn more about Campus Compact, visit us at compact.org. You can send your comments, questions, and show ideas to podcast at compact.org or find us on social media with hashtag compactnationpod or find us on social media with hashtag compactnationpod. You can find our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and tell your friends.